goes on. Welcome to episode number 170 of CXO Talk. I'm Michael Krigsman, and today we're talking about culture and digital transformation. And our guests are Alex Osterwalder, who is one of the world's experts in business models, and Dave Gray, who is one of the world's experts in culture and culture change. And what an exciting show this is. If you're watching on live stream, then, or if you're watching on CXOTalk.com, go to Twitter and you can join this conversation with the hashtag, hashtag CXOTalk, and you can ask questions of these gentlemen. Guys, Alex, let's start with you. Give us uh, very briefly your background and what do you do? I'm the lead author of Business Model Generation and Value Proposition Design and the co-founder of Strategizer, a company that is trying to build a strategic operating system for companies of the 21st century. Okay. And Dave Gray, who are you and what do you do? <laughs> I'm the founder of a uh management consultancy called Explain, and we focus on uh, helping companies with major large-scale change initiatives. Okay, so we have an expert on business models, and we have an expert on culture. And maybe we should begin with Dave to, let's, let's level set here. And when we talk about culture, what actually do we mean? Well, I think uh, what I mean, anytime two or more people interact together, they're creating culture, whether it's a family uh, in, a, in a restaurant or uh, any, any group. And in an organization, what I, I mean when I say organizational culture and a good level set definition of it is culture is how we do things around here. It's the, both the formal uh, procedures and rules as well as the informal how we get stuff done. It's the daily operations uh, sometimes I've described it as being like an operating system on a computer. You don't, you're not always aware of it, but it's always both creating opportunities and limiting what's possible for you to do at all at all times. And Alex, you look at culture through the lens of business models. You're one of the foremost business model experts on the face of the planet. So as as you think about culture through that business model lens. Give us some background and tell us about your, your thinking. Yeah, so, so business models are basically the logic of how you create, deliver, and capture value, right? So I like the way Dave framed it, you know, it's the, the culture is the operating system of your organization. So you need that operating system to run a business model on top of it, right? And, you know, I think what we, what we do really well, the kind of culture we have in most companies today is, is an execution culture. We're really good at, at running, you know, our existing business malls, at um, making them better, you know, uh, cutting out the, the fat and, and getting better at it all the time. But what we're not really good at yet, I think, is besides that execution culture, creating an innovation culture and another operating system. You could almost call it, you know, the dual operating system under, under one company. That's why this topic, I think, is of particular interest when you talk about business models. And that's how Dave Gray and I got to work together on culture. We've known each other for a long time. And, you know, Dave has inspired me a lot. And, and this was just a great opportunity to collaborate on, on, on the, the culture topic. 
And you've been collaborating, uh, Dave, with Alex uh, on something that you developed called the Culture Map. So what is the Culture Map? The Culture Map is simply a tool like the Business Model Canvas. If people here are familiar with the Business Model Canvas, it's simply a very lightweight tool. And by tool, I mean a, literally a piece of, you know, a piece of paper or something that can be presented on, put on a whiteboard, et cetera, for helping people think through what are the things that drive their culture? What, what is the, what are the behavior, not only what the behaviors are, but what are the outcomes that we're getting from those behaviors and what are the underlying uh, enablers and blockers that are, that are actually operating within that culture to make certain things possible and other things impossible. And every, every organization's culture, of course, is unique. And, uh, but I think a lot of times because it is so embedded, even though it's, it's like air, it's always there, but that does not make it easy to see. And a lot of times it's kind of like you've, uh, you, you've gotten so used to, it's like any habit, you know, when I, I used to be a smoker, I, I, I would light a cigarette and be smoking without even being aware of it. And I, sometimes I would light a second one before the first one was done. Even I think uh, organizational culture is like that. It's the habits of an organization, many of them unconscious or uh, you're, uh, things that you're not consciously aware of. And so the culture map is a tool to help you really get a grip on what actually is happening and why. And Alex, what does this have to do with digital transformation? So I think, you know, when, you, when you're trying to change, transformation, change in general, you really want to use tools to, to do that too. I mean, the, what Dave just said, the, the analogy he used, I think is a very, very good one. You know, that culture is like air, it's there, but you can't see it. Um, culture is there, but you can't really see it. And, and it just, you know, companies let it happen. When you want to actively change from one state, from a present state to a future state for whatever topic, you know, it would be business model innovation, digital transformation, you need to make it tangible so you can actually work on it. And when we're talking about digital transformation, you know, we might be talking about substantial changes in behavior. And what the culture map does really well is, you know, make explicit the desired state, the kind of behaviors that you want, you know, kind of tools that you're going to use, the, the outcomes that you want to, want to get from, from uh, this digital transformation. But then most importantly, um, you work on the enablers and blockers that will lead to this uh, future state, to the kind of, you know, kind of digital culture or the use of digital tools that you want to have. So we need, we need tools for any, any type of you know, active work on, on these kinds of topics. And, and, and that's what I think you know, um, we brought to the table when we started working together on this, the tool aspect. And it's pretty important, I think, for executives and doers and companies in general to switch from you know, just working ad hoc on every project towards a more tool-based approach, practical, simple tools, um, you know, for each specific topic. And I think the, the culture map is one that helps us in, in particular in, in big transformations and, you know, digital <laughs> transformation has it, has it in the word, right? It, it's not something that's easy to achieve. So we really need to actively work on the enablers and blockers that lead from a present state to a future state. I could add to that. Um, you know, one of the things there, there are many culture initiatives that are superficial. I mean, there are, there are things that go under the label of culture initiative or culture change initiative that 
only scratch the surface and don't actually get to those underlying enablers and blockers. And it's, it's kind of like those, that kind of culture initiative is almost worse than doing nothing because what you do is you bring people in a room and you give them pizza and you have balloons and you say, we're all going to be this different kind of company now. And here's a picture of this different kind of company that we're going to be. And, and people are, and you haven't actually addressed the enablers and blockers like incentives, like job descriptions, role descriptions, uh, leadership behaviors. And if you're not actually uh, addressing these fundamental underlying uh, systems, you're setting yourself up for failure because people are going to go back to doing after the balloons are uh, all, you know, popped and the pizza's all gone and they're going to walk out of that room and they're going to continue to behave the way that they've behaved in the past because all of these systems and processes are designed for, to, for, to uh, enable people to do certain things and to block them from doing other things. So uh, I think one of the reasons that a tool like this is incredibly important is it does force the thinking. You can, you can easily have a conversation about behaviors and not actually talk about underlying enablers and blockers. And you can say you're gonna change behaviors and you can even have, even have people nodding and saying and agreeing and saying they're gonna do it and maybe even believing they're gonna do it. But you, at the same time, you're, not, you're setting them up for failure if you're not addressing these underlying, um, these underlying systems and structures. It's yeah, one, one thing I'd just like to add on top of that, because I, I think going in, the, in a nice direction here is, you know, if you, if you make the analogy in digital transformation, you know, towards you know, building new business models or coming up with new business models, I think, you know, what companies do really well is work on detailed aspects. If we take business models, you know, people are good at um, working on finance, working on new marketing initiatives, uh, working on new value propositions. But what people have, uh, what companies have kind of lost the bigger they get is, is looking at the big picture, looking at all of the pieces and how together they, they form one story. And it's the same with digital transformation. You'll, you, to, to really succeed, you need to address a lot of moving pieces and you need to have this one story, how everything fits together. And in general, when you, when you visualize this, I mean, something that Explain has been doing now for, for decades, right? Um, and, and with the culture map, we're doing it now specifically for the culture topic. Then, then you, you start seeing those connections. You start seeing that bigger picture. So I think it's rarely the smaller pieces that, that are the problem. I think people are very good at designing new digital tools and implementing new initiatives. But what people are not always very good at is mapping that, you know, kind of detailed, those detailed aspects, those 10 pieces to the bigger picture. So we all move into the same direction. And that's where, where these tools, um, business small canvas, value proposition canvas, culture map, all have a very similar function. They, they make um, bigger picture issues, big uh, business issues, visible, tangible, and, and, and they kind of show us the story of, of what's behind it. So when we work together as a team, we all pull into the same direction. And, and that's one of the big challenges today where there's so many things are going on in companies. We need alignment. So, so I think the culture map helps create that alignment in, in digital transformation initiatives. It seems to me that this emphasis on the underlying enablers or the underlying inhibitors of the culture change really distinguishes this from traditional change management. Dave was talking earlier about having pizza parties and balloons, <laughs> which uh, that kind of thing doesn't address at all 
the underlying dynamics of the change. So maybe can you, can you talk a little bit about the underlying dynamics in a digital transformation environment? Well, yeah, I mean, so for example, you're not going to become more, uh, you're not going to become Google by getting a bunch of beanbag chairs and throwing them on the floor and getting a ping pong table and uh, like just, you know, changing those kind of superficial things. I mean, the workplace environment does matter, uh, of course, but it's the stuff beneath that. And when we talk about enablers and blockers, we're talking about things like uh, rules, procedures, uh, both formal rules and informal rules. And there are informal rules in every organization, uh, even to the point of, you know, uh, well, don't, don't take notes. If you're going to say anything that we're going to be doing, that's illegal. Just don't write it down. It's like, well, you know, that's not going to be a culture. That's if, if it's a culture of don't write it down, it's not going to be a culture of don't do it. Is it? <laughs> if you think about it, right. It's a culture of, well, just don't leave a record. Don't leave a trace. There's a difference. And when we have, when we talk about enablers and blockers, some of those are the informal rules, and some of them are uh, literally very formal things. The lay, physical layout of the office space, my Google joke aside, uh, the uh, incentives. Well, what, what do people get rewarded for? What do they get promoted for? What gets people fired? Uh, what are the conversations that people are having? One of the things that we come up against a lot is that most large enterprises, many of them are not emotionally safe places where people just don't trust each other. They're political, you know, often very uh, politicized environments where territory and, you know, budgets are basically organized in territorial and hierarchical ways. And uh, one of the first conversations we often have is what is it going to take for people to trust each other in this organization? How do we build trust? Where do you lack trust today and where do you need to build it? Um, those are the kind of things that we talk about when we're talking about enablers. And they're, they're, they're conversations that are, are not necessarily easy to have. I think they often do require an outside facilitator or someone who, um, you know, when you have someone, when you're trying to facilitate these conversations purely internally, you're putting a huge amount of political pressure on the people who are facilitating the process. And I think it's uh, very useful to have someone, uh, you know, like a therapist in a way, someone who's there to help people have constructive conversations, but to continue to ask those tough questions that actually get to the root causes. Uh, organizations are honestly, they are systems of relationships between people. And when we talk about culture, we're, we have to actually get down to the roots of what, it, what, are the, what are the relationships of how people operate together today and what do they need to look like in order for us to become this organization that we're trying to become? Alex, yeah, what, I was going to yeah, say, just, what, what does this have to do with business models? <laughs> so, so again, I think that's, you know, what I was mentioning before, going from a present state to a future state. Um, you know, let's, take, let's take business model innovation as a, as a specific topic. Um, companies are good at managing their existing business models, right? But there's a whole challenge today of creating new new business models because companies need to create growth. If you you know already already have a, a 10 billion or 100 billion in in, uh, in uh, turnover and you need to grow 5% every year, that's you know building a 5 billion dollar business or 5 billion euro business every year. That's not easy to do. You need to have an innovation culture to do that besides your execution culture. So it's not either or, it's and. So 
you know, how do you create that innovation culture? Um, how do you get people to experiment and uh, try out things and fail rapidly, fail quickly, fail often, learn from that and iterate? Well, you, you won't get that with the present state culture in most companies, which is geared to execution. You know, you stick to the plan. You have to project, you know, what you're going to what you're going to deliver. And, and there's no space for for failure. And that's OK for the execution engine. Right. Because you're in an environment that, you know, you know, the customers, you know, the processes, you know, the market. But it's not OK when you're trying to do something new. You can't expect from somebody to come up with something new. Um, you know, imagine something new and then just deliver because they don't know. They literally have no clue <laughs> what the new business model is going to look like. It's just that today in today's culture, you're not allowed to say that you have no clue. You're not allowed to experiment. You have to show a business plan. You have to show projections. So the culture that we have in the execution engine today running businesses is perfect for that. But it's, it's, it's bad. It's, it actually basically kills innovation when it comes to you know bigger picture innovation. So if we want to be able to create that innovation culture, we need to completely change the enablers and blockers or eliminate the blockers <laughs> like business plans. Uh, one example, business plans actually maximize the risk of failure because they force you to refine an idea before you tested anything. They get you to put in really detailed numbers making it up, you know, maybe after a bottle of wine. And then, you know, senior executives buy into that. They actually literally kind of buy <laughs> that business plan because they're going to finance it. And then you're doomed because you're going to execute, you know, a, a fantasy. So to quote Steve Blank, you know, who launched this whole um, lean startup movement, um, he likes to say the, the, there's a very fine line between, you know, a vision and hallucination. And in order to... <laughs> <laughs> you know, prove that your vision of a new growth engine is right, you actually need to test all the time, which is not possible in today's culture. So, so you need to work on those enablers. What are the enablers that are going to lead to experimentation? And um, what are the rituals, for example, that are going to get people to experiment? Well, you need to celebrate failure and learning. You need to celebrate, you know, that we've done things wrong, but we actually learned from it and we iterated quickly and we're working towards, you know, figuring out what actually works. We're not writing business plans anymore, but we're finding evidence. We need a culture where evidence trumps opinion. It's not the senior leader with the, exper with the experience of the past business model who should trump the conversation with past experience and, and opinion. No, it's the people, the teams, the intrapreneurs who experiment and can really bring data and facts to the table, evidence of what's going to work that should trump the, you know, the conversation, the, that should trump opinion. So for, to do all that, we need to be systematic. We need to map this desired culture and we need to really work on the enablers and eliminate the blockers, you know, from incentive systems to all kind of formal and informal things that we have in place to achieve that new culture that leads to innovation. So, Dave Gray, how, in fact, can an organization with an established culture do the things that Alex was just talking about? It seems like it's, it's easy on one level to talk about having a, a culture that accepts innovation and accepts risk-taking and failing fast and experimenting and so forth, but it seems very difficult to actually accomplish in practice. So how do we do it? 
Well, it is very difficult to accomplish in practice. And uh, I would say it would be nice if there was a recipe book that we could pull out and give every organization and say, here's how you do it. Um, I think there are, uh, we are in a point of time in history when a lot of organizations are figuring it out. There are certain types of organizations that were born digital. They don't need to do digital transformation. Companies like Amazon and and uh, Google were born digital. They have uh, an advantage to companies that were born in an industrial age that now have to transform. It's, it's quite different to take an organization that is mature, has developed over 100 years or more, and now try and take those people through transformation. And that's what I mean when I sometimes compare uh, culture work to gardening. There is a, uh, if you think about uh, design. We, you know, Alex and I are huge fans of design and uh, the role of transformation. Uh, design as a tool for transformation. Design thinking. What we, uh, if you think about design and you think about something like culture, culture is very organic. It's something that lives in people. It lives in the relationships. And designing a culture is something that is very similar to designing a garden. And you know, you you, you design a garden by putting the structures in place, looking around at the climate. Uh, determining what's possible within this climate. Uh, Alex and I have had this conversation. You're not going to try and grow a palm tree in Geneva. Uh, you would be, it would be a mistake to try and grow, start a pineapple farm in, uh, in Missouri where I live. You know, there are certain climates that are conducive to certain things and certain climates that are not conducive, that are conducive to certain things and not others. And you have to understand your organization. In some cases, it may not make sense for you to try and transform the culture of your current organization to make it more innovative. It may make sense to create a new organization. Or uh, I've seen a number of things, companies do a number of things. One is you create the innovation uh, center of excellence where people are actually, um, there's a team that is in charge specifically with enabling and helping, helping people figure this stuff out. So they are kind of like a support system or a center of excellence, and they will invite people to their innovation center or their group. They will teach them the tools. They uh, um, will help them uh, adopt them and so forth. There's also the um, idea of the innovation lab, which is kind of an external like a thing. Um, I think one of the things that um, uh, for me is has I've seen the most success with is actually finding a very important and pressing issue that's external to the organization. Say you're in banking right now, you know that Bitcoin is something you should be thinking about. You know that the millennials uh, are not using banks in the way that their parents did. You know that these are, these are pressing external issues. And if you find one, if you could find an issue that is a burning issue that is very important, that can enable you sometimes to get the senior people from a cross-functional group together in the and spend a week doing a deep dive with them on let's, we don't have the organization in our, the, the, the knowledge in our company lives in, in silos and these, these business functions today. But in order to figure out this problem, this wicked problem that we have to face, we're going to have to get our heads together. And, you know, you need a compelling problem to get the, the focus of senior executives in a room to, like that. And um, you might need as long as a week to do it. Um, I have a friend named Alex Ryan who's doing this with the, within the government of Alberta, Canada right now. Um, they're uh, out in Canada and Alberta. They're very energy dependent. They're, it's an oil-based economy. They have to be thinking about the future 
Um, what's the future going to look like, a future of electric cars and so forth? Um, what they did was they pulled an, a whole bunch of people from across the government together and industry together to, to address this problem and actually talk about it. And what's interesting about design thinking is design thinking is not about predicting the future. It's often about predicting multiple possible futures and looking at the, across a whole scope of, of issues. Um, every organization today that's been around for, um, let's say, more than 20 or 30 years has got um, and issues in their business environment that are pressing and need to be addressed, uh, often urgently. That's, I think, a, often a great place to start because it gets people's attention. And then, if you if you can get their attention, then you can and you can get them for a week. Then you can expose them to design thinking and design tools, and that's a very powerful thing. I mean, it's like Buck, I think what Buckminster Fuller once said: you know, uh, don't uh, try and change people's thinking. Give them a tool the use of which will change the way that they think. And when it, when it comes to designing or helping, especially senior people, try to think through culture, I think it's very powerful if you can create an experience through which they will come to a different way of thinking or become exposed to a different way of thinking. Yeah, just to, to add to that, I think, you know, that, that garden analogy really puts it nicely. I, th I think if we look at culture today in most organizations, well, culture is there, right? Every organization has culture, but, but they just let it happen. They don't actually design culture. Most companies don't really take care of culture. They don't take care of that garden. So it just happens. And what we're trying to do here is um, really make this a bit more systematic so you can intentionally design culture, but like a garden, not like, like uh, you know, designing a car where you have everything under your control. Um, with a garden, you don't. But um, we are, I, I really think we're seeing more companies moving towards this, realizing if we don't take care um, of culture and we don't try to work on culture, we're going to be a victim of, of the forces around us because they're becoming pretty violent, right? And, you know, um, 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 Sol Kaplan likes to say that, that you, you, you want to make sure that you're not Netflix. And I think it, Netflix is a, is a good example because they actually um, put out a, a culture deck there, and which was very popular. I think now there's 14 million views on the slide deck that they put out there on SlideShare. And that shows that it's, it's a very hot topic today. And I think what, what Dave said is very, you know, very um, correct, that because of the environment that's changing, senior executives are paying a lot more attention to how am I going to survive? Um, because they're going to be more blockbusters, more Kodaks, more Nokias than we've seen ever before. I mean, businesses, business malls, companies are expiring like a yogurt in the fridge. It's inevitable. It's going to happen. It's going to happen faster than, than ever before, simply because competition is ferocious. It's easier for smart people to build a business, to disrupt other companies. We're going to see more of that. So, so culture is, is on the agenda of some of the best companies out there, um, you know, HubSpot put, put a slide deck out there as well, Boston-based company, right? And it created a, a controversial conversation because somebody who was working there didn't like it, wrote a book about, about this, all this startup culture, it's all. But it shows that, you know, as, as soon as there are conversations that get heated, it shows that there's a real topic there, right? People are taking sides and, and, and they have an opinion. I think this is, is one of the most pressing things um, after, obviously, I'm not super subjective there, but besides business model innovation, 
which you know culture is, is is crucial and you can't actually do business model innovation without taking care of your organizational culture dave last uh last week i moderated a panel of chief digital officers from large media organizations and this was in new york city and there was unanimity unanimous agreement that the hardest part of their job as a, as a CDO is the culture change and dealing with the culture. So what advice do you have for an organization that is trying to adopt new business models at the same time as being forced to run their old business model because that's where the bulk of their revenue is still coming from and, and there's this cultural mismatch and it's just really hard. Yeah, I, I, I have a story that I love to tell about a friend of mine named uh, Mick Calder. His name is uh, Mick Calder. He works with a company. He's a, company, he's a turnaround guy. His company is called the 333 Group. And if you know anything about turnarounds, what, what his company does is they come in, they take a company that's uh, like, a, as Alex said, a Nokia, or a company that's distressed and uh, just about at the end of its rope. They come in. They buy it, sometimes for practically nothing, just the, the existing debt of the company, and they turn it around. And uh, I was having a beer with Mick, and I asked him, Mick, how is it that you can come in knowing nothing about a company, knowing nothing, come in and buy it and turn it around when the people who have been operating that company for 50 years, up to 50 years, all their experience, they can't do it. Why can't, why can you do it when they can't? And I'm getting to the answer to your question, which is here was his answer. He said, we come in and we, we, we usually don't have a lot of conversations with the management because we don't need to. Um, we have conversations with the employees and we have conversations with the customers and between talking to the employees and talking to the customers, but we find that pretty much everyone already knows what needs to happen. Uh, well, why hasn't it happened? Well, it's because the leaders have gotten out of calibration with the business environment. They have, and to, uh, to again invoke Steve Blank, they have not gotten outside of the building in a, in a, a number of years. They've, not, they've lost touch with uh, customers. They've lost touch with some of the business reality. When you're a senior in any organization, there are a lot of filters uh, to filter out bad information because nobody wants to be giving the boss bad news. So the more layers you have in the organization, the happier things look by the time you actually get the numbers, which theoretically are objective, but in actual fact are often not. So what happens is what we do when it comes time to transform an organization is we do go deep. We, we have converse, we facilitate conversations with customers, with employees, with the rank and file. We build um, a movement in a way, um, in the same way that you might build a civil rights movement. We actually work within the organization to try and understand what's really going on and what needs to be learned and what the organization is having trouble hearing, uh, because it, often that's the case, is the organization has, because of its habits and because of its routines, often those routines involve moving information around, and often that information is getting manipulated as it's been moving around to paint a more, perhaps a more rosy picture or a different picture. And what, uh, so the answer to your question, in my mind, is you've got to actually tune your listening. You've got, to, you've got to really calibrate to the external environment. You've got to listen to people inside of the company, but you've also got to be listening in a way that's focused 
on customer issues and concerns. And uh, you know, what Alex is very familiar um, with the sort of the set of tools and techniques that we've developed for this, which we call gamestorming collectively. But I would include in that, you know, lots of design thinking techniques that involve that really get people engaged in not just having conversations, blah, 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 around a table, but drawing pictures and visualizing and really thinking through what's going on around them and, and having those conversations where sometimes uh, you, you need to have conversations with three or four or five people before you can form a single picture of what's going on that has any validity. Alex Osterwalder, you're, you're the expert in business models and we're talking about this intersection of business model and culture. And Dave was saying, well, you need to listen very carefully. But when I talk with people inside companies, one of the problems that they face is they're undertaking, trying to undertake this business model change and change the culture to be one of listening and to be customer centric. But at the same time, you have what some people call the uh, anti-innovation antibodies. Because if you have, for example, a salesperson in a particular role and you're asking she or he to now take a different form of compensation because we're no longer selling on-premise software with a big payment up front, but it's now going to be spread out over a long period of time, that person doesn't want to change. And so if you were to listen, the, the answer would be, uh, hear me. I don't want to change. I don't want to do this differently. So in that kind of case, which happens all the time, what do we do? Yeah, so, so you know, I, th I think you, when you have a business model that works um, and still works and still, you know, creates results, you don't necessarily need to change that. <laughs> what you need to have is a space where innovation can live, where you can prove what works, and then you grow it from there and you attract the people to that new business model that, that you know, that are, that are interested in that. So I recommend to really understand the issue really well that anybody who's listening today um, and then the recording should read the shareholder uh, letter by Jeff Bezos um, in his last annual report um, from Amazon, where he really shows what's so particular about their culture and why they are so good at creating new growth engines. Because one thing you want to keep in mind is that Amazon you know, is the company that grew fastest from zero to hundred million, hundred billion dollars in revenues. And they just, you know, achieved from zero to 10 billion with Amazon Web Services, you know, which everybody said, hey, why are these um, e-commerce guys trying to build infrastructure services? Why don't they leave that to IBM, HP and so on? Um, but they, they did it. Why is that? Because they created a culture where people can experiment and once there's proof that this is going to work, they scale that part, right? They're not telling people who are doing their job really well in e-commerce to change because that might not be necessary because you want people who are good at what they do, who continue to sell the way they sell. And, you know, not every new growth engine is necessarily a disruption of the old, right? Um, if you take Amazon Web Services, it's very complementary. Now, there are other examples, you know, Amazon has also self-disrupted a couple of times when they launched the marketplace. They basically said, hey, anybody can sell on our on our platform and compete with our own stuff. Right. So so they actually created that 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 disruption. But they created this innovation culture throughout the company. And if you read that shareholder letter by Bezos, you'll understand 
that this is not luck that Amazon can actually change continuously, can reinvent itself, being excellent at what they do and create new growth engines. That's not a coincidence. That's a cultural issue. And he specifically uses the word culture. And he says, if there's one thing that Amazon does really well throughout the company, it's, it's experimentation. And he says, Amazon is the best place to fail. <laughs> because they're good at it in the sense that, you know, they learn from it and they change. And the CEO himself, Jeff Bezos, has failed. Take, you know, the, the Kindle Fire was a big failure, but they learned from it and they didn't stop. Um, if you take um, um, Apple, might be a bit closer to the case that you said, when they launched the iPhone, guess what? They knew they were going to disrupt the iPod sales, right? But, but they, 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 they made that transition. It's part of, of a culture of an, what I like to call an invincible company that is willing to reinvent itself while they're successful. And, and that you need to create, that culture that everybody is willing to change when it's time for change. But people are also willing to be extraordinary at execution while you, know, you can still make money from an existing business. That's something you can put in place. And that's the kind of people that you hire, um, if, you, if you keep people on board who are not willing to change, it's your own fault that you're not changing, right? I mean, there's a, there's a time, and, and this is where Netflix was, was pretty you know, uh, tough, saying that you know, there's a time for every skill and every competence, and, and there's a, the, you know, they, they just need to fit between what the business is trying to achieve and what people can bring to the table. Now, obviously, you want to do that in a human way to really make sure that people are able to work on the stuff they like to do. But that's a cultural issue. And, and, and you know, if culture was fuzzy until now, I think with the culture map, what we tried to do is make it concrete, something that you can visualize, something that you can work on. So it's not this fu fuzzy conversation anymore. Um, and, and that's what, <laughs> what, we're, what we're out trying to do, getting people to understand together with uh, Dave gray strategizer and explain to show that culture is something you can work on it's something that you can change it's not an accident it's not something that you just should leave there it's something that you know that's in our hands and the first great companies are already doing it now they have a tool to do it even better yeah let me go back to your to your salesperson example michael you got uh sales uh uh member of the sales team used to getting a big bonus, uh, selling this large uh, iron, whatever, right? Um, well, the, what's the traditional way to change incentives? You know, well, we're, get, we're gonna go to a subscription model, you're gonna get, uh, you know, incentives this way, we've designed the incentives, blah, 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 blah. Um, well, no wonder you get resistance because you designed the incentives in the same way that you designed the incentives the last time, which was, you were like the scientist lab master, you were designing the maze, and you were putting the cheese and the uh, the, the little uh, shock buzzers in various parts of the maze, and you're asking people, you're saying, this is the maze, go run the maze. Well, that's not actually different than the way we've done it in the past. That's the same. And guess what? People, you know, when people look at that, they say, hey, uh, you're treating me like a rat in a maze. And that's very obvious. It's like, and people don't operate that way. If you go to that salesperson, instead of saying, here are the new incentives, go sell this way now. You say, look, here's the problem that we're facing in the world. Here are the things that we have to do. Um, we know, and you know, 
that we are not going to be selling this big iron in this, you know, big boxes and so forth in the future. You know that, we know that. That's a reality. Now, here's what we need to do. We need to move to selling uh, software subscriptions. We need to move to a different approach. Now, and this is where the culture map can be very handy. Now, help us figure out, if, if we want you to be selling in this way and building relationships with customers in this way, how do we need to design the incentives for you to be not just grudgingly willing, but excited to come in and do that every day? What can we do? And I'll tell you, Michael, when we go in and we ask that question, 90% uh, of the time, what we hear is, no one has ever asked me before what my incentives should look like to get me to do the things that I know we need to do as an organization. This is the first time anyone has even asked me that question. And Alex, now, oh, I'm, I'm sorry. I was gonna... just, I'm just talking about treating people like human beings and asking them, not like rats in a maze, not telling them that, no, we need to change and be this new thing now, but asking them and, and actually treating them as adults and saying, look, this is what we need to do together. We have to figure this out to help us build the system, help us build the structure. It's like kind of like asking the people of New York how we should build the subway. Of course you want their input. Yeah, and I think, I think that's actually a big, that's a very, very big, big issue that, you know, we need to co-create more in the modern organization um, because people, you know, the, the most talented people don't want to be told what to do, in particular, if it's, you know, against what they believe in, against their skills and so on. So, so how do you co-create, um, you know, the right workspace, the right incentives, the right rituals, the right way of working, the right behaviors? It's by making these conversations tangible. So the culture map is just a tool, right? Um, you know, a fool with a tool is still a fool. <laughs> but um, I think you need tools to make these conversations tangible and visible and structured. And you need a great facilitator. It, like this, this does, doesn't just happen. It's an art to have great conversations, to facilitate a conversation. And great tools are part of that, but also a great facilitation process. Now, guess what? And these are two things that companies are not very good at. Number one, they don't use tools all the time. In particular, you know, the higher we get, the more you know, important the topics, the less we actually use tools for strategic issues, pretty rare, right? Because we don't have this tradition of using tools and we don't have a tradition of you know, good facilitation. Some people are very naturally good at it, but we don't systematically facilitate or you know, facilitate well or bring facilitators in. So these are two big things. If we really want to, you know, keep the, our most talented people in, in companies and we want to create a culture where people can do their best work ever and really thrive <laughs> and, and bring to the table what they want to bring to the table, then we need to use these kind of tools and we need to facilitate the conversation so we can really build the organization of the 21st century. Many companies are still stuck in the 19th century when it comes to organizational design, right? They might use... They might build the technology of the 21st century, but I'm not so sure, and I'm a bit provocative here, of course, because you know we have smart people in, in companies, but there's not yet this, this culture of using great tools and, and great facilitation, but it's changing. So I, I see, I mean, I have the luxury of meeting a lot of these people who want to change, who are hungry for tools, and I'm seeing business schools and, and design schools and engineering schools churning out people who use these tools, but I think those people in power, in quotes, today 
are not all, I think, you know, many of them are, are still working the old way. Um, and, and we need to try to make this change happen faster. And some of these people are not changing just because they don't know. I mean, you know, when you run a 10 billion, a 50 billion or hundred billion dollar company, you don't have that much time to, to be on the lookout for kind of how am I going to do this better with which tools? So, so we need to make these things more aware. And I, I think this show is great opportunity also to make people more aware of how the organization of the 21st century looks like and how the culture in that kind of organization looks like and how we can work on that culture. I think it's also important to recognize, Michael, and it's very fair that any kind of all most of these cultural shifts that we're talking about will involve transfers of power. There will be people who lose power. Um, there will be people, and sometimes uh, what one of the things that makes it really difficult is there are people who um, whose job it is to uh, go to meetings and and move information around and actually take information and filter it and transfer that information to someone else. And sometimes those people will look at the future and they don't see their a job for them. And I think it's very important to have the to be able to have conversations that actually put those power issues on the table. If if you try and pretend they don't exist and you don't discuss them, then um, you're going to have this kind of undercurrent, uh, almost like this sort of uh, um, guerrilla, you know, uh, movement that's operating against everything that you're trying to achieve in a very informal and under the table kind of way. You have to put those issues on the table and you have to have conversations with people about them. And you've got to point people. I mean, one of the reasons that we draw a lot of pictures in the work that we do with culture changes you want people to see themselves in the future. You want them people to be able to see and, and when they look out five, 10 years in the future of this organization, that there's a job for them, that there's, that there's something that's very important that they're doing, even if it's radically different than what they're doing today. Um, and what a lot of change initiatives fail to address is that very, couple of those issues. They fail to actually put those uh, difficult conversations on the table and they try and kind of brush them over. And I mean, a lot of times people just prefer to be polite. And, and it's not that they're trying to be mean. They're just, they just, you know, nobody likes to have a difficult conversation. And um, one of the things that the tools, like the tools that Alex and I are talking about are helpful is because they, they actually uh, make those conversations both explicit and constructive at the same time. You're having a conversation within a context always of something we're trying to achieve as an organization. When you look at that picture and say, well, I don't see a job for me, then we have that conversation. And we actually, we're, we're, if we're drawing out the future state, um, most of the time we are going to need people, especially people with the wisdom and experience who've been around for a long time, understand uh, the organization and understand the industry. We are going to need those people, but I think sometimes it's hard for them to picture themselves in that future state. And Alex, I think the, the, I, I, the most competent people will love these tools. They, they want to bring them to the table I think the antibodies are usually coming from from the people who are afraid of, of transparency, who are, who are afraid of putting these things on the table. They can hide in fuzziness while you don't make this transparent, while you don't visualize it. But 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 the 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 most you know those who really want to advance, who really want change, they love these tools. They really they really start using them. But you know it's a very dangerous place for those people who were, who were hiding their incompetence in the fuzziness. Um, things are becoming transparent with these new tools and, you know, and people are fighting back, obviously. 
So, so it's a pretty exciting time to see how these organizations are changing. You know, we're just about out of time. So as we finish, uh, Dave Gregg, you are really one of the experts in the world on this topic of culture change. And very briefly, give us the distilled, summarized essence of your advice to drive culture change successfully. And then we'll come back and I'll ask Alex uh, something similar. Okay, I'd say there are three things that are critically important. One is you've got to have the strategic clarity to understand what is going on in your business environment, uh, to think beyond industries. Uh, Airbnb is not in the hotel industry. Um, you know. Uh, Uber is not in the taxi industry. Thinking in terms of industry is, is what gets you into trouble. So you have to have strategic clarity and look at the business environment and look at it broadly enough to start to think uh, creatively and strategically about it. So there's got to be reality. There's got to be some reality before you can even have those conversations. Um, you, the second thing you need is commitment. You need actually people to understand why this is happening. So you need to actually communicate that stuff with clarity and help them see why they should care about this. What's in it for them? Uh, why this is important? Sometimes it involves getting people to think long-term and, and not just the short-term quarter-to-quarter scenario. So you've got to get them committed, um, uh, motivated and committed and actually caring. That's the cultural piece. And then the third piece is capability. You have to give them the skills and the tools that they need and, or, and the resources that they need in order to achieve these things. So the, the combination of the strategic clarity, the um, organizational cultural commitment and the capability are sort of like three, the three legs of the stool, I guess, in, in moving an organization in any kind of uh, significant way at scale. Um, those are th those are three pieces, and it's they, they, and one of the things that I find valuable is by making those things actually literally into a picture or a design tool, and actually forcing the um, the teams to build consensus and alignment around those three things: what we need to do, why we should care, how we're actually going to execute on that. Um, that picture making and visual design tools are incredibly powerful uh, organizing force for making that happen. And Alex Osterwalder, you are the business model king of the world. And so, so just very briefly as we finish out here, what, uh, what is your distilled advice about driving culture change for successfully when it's part of a business model transformation or a digital transformation? Um. I think one of the things that, that um, I still see is that people wait for the right moment to start working on business model um, innovation. And there is no right moment. It's now and it's always. So I would really, you know, advise that people <laughs> read um, Rita McGrath's uh, Columbia professor stuff around, you know, this, this ongoing transformation and how to create more agile strategy and not think that you can build a competitive advantage, run, you know, work with that same business model for decades. Those, those good days are over, right? It's not going to happen again. What you really want to do is to create what, you know, some academics call the ambidextrous organization, where you have a great execution engine and you have a great innovation engine. And we wrote a little bit of a provocative um, 
HBR blog post on this idea that besides the CEO, the chief, let me call it execution officer, you have a chief entrepreneur and they're at the same level. They're, they're you know, peers. Uh, one focuses on the present and the other focuses on the future and they report to the executive chairman of the board. Um, we need to experiment with new organizational structures to create companies who can have an execution culture and innovation culture under the same roof. And I'm not talking about the traditional R&D of doing product and technology innovation. I'm talking about companies that can create systematically new growth engines. And there are a few of those. Like even if you take Nestle, um, biggest you know, food company just around the corner from where I live, yes, they built Nespresso, but it was luck, right? It, that was a coincidence. Can they um, systematically create Nespresso's <laughs> the same size, you know, multi-billion dollar businesses? No, there are very few companies that can do that. You know, Apple and Amazon, you know, at the front. To become a company that will survive, that won't expire like a yogurt in the fridge, you need to experiment with new organizational structures. You can't work with the organizational structures of the past. Otherwise, you're, you're going to, you know, become, you know, you're going to, die like the dinosaurs that died. I, I think you, you just can't survive with the old organizational structures and we can't have those compromises anymore. I, I think it's really time to, to change. Um, you know, new organizational structures need to, <laughs> need to happen now for those companies who want to survive in the 21st century and who want to create a great workplace, right? Is at the end of the day, I think we also have the social responsibility to create places that are great to work at, where we create value for customers, but also value for employees. I mean, we spend so much time at, at our companies, you know, seven out of 10 people are not engaged at work, according to some statistics. That's just not, that's, that can't be, right? We can't spend thousands and thousands of hours just waiting for the weekend or waiting for, you know, the next party. I think that's just not, that's not how organizations should be run. So beyond business small innovation, I think we just need to create great workplaces again, where people are inspired. They want to do their best work, but they can also, you know, have a life. They're not going to work from eight to, to, uh, to uh, at, at 10 o'clock in the evening every day. They have families, they have kids and so on. So I think it's time for, for, for change. Okay. Wow. So we have been talking with Alex Osterwalder, who is the business model king of the world. Actually, he, it's, it's true. He is an author and has been building uh, business model tools that are ubiquitous. And we've been talking with Dave and his company, Strategizer. We've been talking with Dave Gray of the consulting company, Explain, who is the culture expert and culture change go-to guy that pretty much I would guess for everybody, if you want culture change, he's the guy you would go to. And you have been watching episode number 170 of CXO Talk. I'm Michael Krigsman. Thank you for watching. Thank you to these great gentlemen and come back next week.